0: All right, would you stand for the reading of God's Word, Exodus 20? We're beginning at verse 8. It reads this way. Remember, Exodus 20, verse 8, the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant your cattle, or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You may be seated. Father, thank you for this teaching, this insight on a rhythm of life principle that is the Sabbath day, what we know as the Shabbat, And thank you that you gave it to Israel. The principle goes right back to the beginning of time, to the creation account itself. And it carries over to the New Covenant Church as we've gathered on the Lord's Day to honor the resurrection, to come together as the body of Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile. It doesn't matter who we are, where we've come from, we're all one in Christ. And we come to this house of worship to worship our king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the God who entered into time and space in the person of Christ, the one who came to bear our burdens, to give us true spiritual rest, the one who is our Sabbath. And Lord, thank you that you said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How desperately we need to hear this command, Lord, and understand it and apply it. So may you be pleased with the way that we both divide your word and respond to it. And may you give us ears to hear what your spirit says to your church in this hour. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, we have come to the fourth commandment, that is the Sabbath day. And the command certainly confronts a busy culture. You could even say a culture who has the God of busyness. We are probably the busiest people that have ever existed. And the Jewish people are the only people that ever existed, to my knowledge, who were given a day of rest as a command from the Lord. Recently, I came across a quote from Bill Gates who has a net worth of $138 billion. He was asked why he didn't believe in God. He said, just in terms of allocation of time resources, religion is not very efficient. There's a lot more that I could be doing on a Sunday morning, close quote. That's Bill Gates. But Bill Gates is not the only voice that is saying that because the busyness of life has crept into our culture at large and to the church culture. Some of you can remember back in the day when most things were shut down on Sunday in America, And culturally, we kind of accepted that Sunday was a day when most people, most families went to church. And that has certainly been far removed from our culture now. And I'm not saying it's always a good thing for a culture to embrace a day void of the spiritual reasons behind it. So certainly, we would would argue that people can become cultural Christians. But still, the day was a good day. It was set aside And it was a a day to honor the Lord. And I will say to even business owners, there are a couple businesses that I can think of that have decided to close on Sunday. One of them, if you want to get a chicken sandwich at this place, uh, you have to basically wait around the block. I don't know what they're putting in the chicken. uh, But I was talking to a friend who said, you know, uh, there's something about that chicken. I just find myself craving it. And uh, they're not hurting because they're closed on Sundays. Another company is Hobby Lobby, and they have closed on Sundays, and they're doing well as well. So sometimes we think that we have to be squeezed into this mode of the culture, but God is blessing people who honor him. In fact, he says, if you honor me, I will honor you. But this has moved far away and, and certainly it has now gravitated into the church culture where I remember back in the day of coaching and playing Little League where Sundays, you, there was no thought of playing Little League baseball on a Sunday. But now travel ball and everything that's going on and people are busy and and you know um, I'm, I'm not trying to judge any of that, but I will tell you I have friends personally who went that direction for the sake of whatever they thought they needed to do to fit in to the culture and the pressure. And they have a a level of regret for going that way because they feel like there were formative years in the family that they missed. And all of a sudden, you know, uh, it's easy to get away from God. And for those of you who are in the regular habit of worshiping on a Sunday morning, you know that a few weeks away from corporate worship and from the teaching of the word of God and what God does when we assemble together, it does affect you. There is a a price to pay for staying away. Hence, we need a command. Isn't it interesting? God has to command us to rest. We need a commandment to slow down. Eugene Peterson put it this way. Nothing less than a command has the power to intervene in the vicious, accelerating, self-perpetuating cycle of faithless and graceless busyness, close quote. It seems like the culture is moving faster than ever, but making little to no spiritual progress. And so the question of the Sabbath comes into our view. And I'm going to give you four things as an outline to follow these uh, verses before us. Number one, if you're taking notes, what to do. That is, what what are we commanded to do? That's in verse 8. Number two, we're going to look at how we are to do it in verses 9 and 10. Number three, we're gonna ask the question, why are we to do it in verse 11? And then the final point is gonna be, how does it apply to a new covenant church who is not Israel and technically is not under the Sabbath command? What should we do? Some of you may have debated friends who are in movements like Seventh-day Adventism, who basically, you know, the founder of Seventh-day Adventism argued that Sunday worship is the mark of the beast. I mean, geez, that's not even a light middle ground there, right? But what are we to understand about the modern application to a Christian today who's in a New Covenant church setting? And we know that the Old Covenant has been supplanted by the New Covenant, and the Old Covenant is obsolete. But we know that the moral commands of the law still apply to us. How are we to work that out? Well, one thing I would say to you is that the civil command is now gone And and I'm not talking about to a a Jewish person because a Jewish person might still want to fulfill that or keep that. There's a ceremonial aspect that's been fulfilled of the command of the Sabbath, but there is a moral aspect that remains. Here's an example. Right now we're teaching through the book of Malachi on Wednesday nights. That's (laughs) the Italian version of Malachi. And in Malachi, there's a... uh, a warning about a curse if you don't tithe. Well, pastors in the modern church have taken that warning given to the people of Israel in the book of Malachi and used it to beat up modern churchgoers. But it doesn't apply to them. There's no curse that you're gonna be under if you don't tithe. But I would also say that the principle still carries over. 10% may be a good place to start thinking about giving, but you're not under the law. God loves a cheerful giver. In the same way, the Sabbath is the only one of the 10 commandments not repeated in the New Testament. In fact, there is a a, uh, verse that would actually say we, uh, we don't need to judge each other on the day that we decide to worship. And we'll get to that at the end of the message. But still, I would submit to you that God is giving us kingdom of God. Who is your king kind of questions. A rhythm, if you will, that goes all the way back to creation. And it's simply this. God knows that you and I need a day of rest. But not just a day of rest. A day of reflection. A day of worship. A day to connect with our God and with those around us a day to remember. And this is exactly how the section starts with the word remember, Exodus 20, verse eight. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, in remembering the day, what happens to us is we remember who our God is. See, a a covenant is being made at Sinai. God has come down. Heaven has come down to earth and God is voicing the commands to his people. He's saying these are kingdom priorities. If you say that I am your king and you are part of my kingdom, then this is what I would have you to do. I want you to give one day in seven to shut everything down and to draw near to me. I want... I want my kingdom and who I am to be the focus of this particular day. And this is a rhythm of life that many of you have gotten into as now you worship regularly on the Lord's Day and you have planted your flag and you have said, as for me and my house, this is where we're gonna be because Jesus is my king. And I would argue that if you are not consistently in Sunday worship, save all the other things that could be happening, shut-ins and the like, But if you are not in regularly a worshiper on a Sunday morning in a church, I wonder whether or not Jesus is really your Lord, because this is a kingdom priority. And I will also say that in the COVID era where we have live stream services and people are watching screens, that is not church, because when we come to church, there are several things going on. God inhabits the praises of our corporate worship. We center under the teaching of the word of God. We use our gifts to serve one another. We pray for the sick. We lay hands. The the idea of a holy kiss, I'm not saying that you should do it right now, but the idea of a holy kiss goes all the way back to Jesus. There is a, a beauty in the touch, in the hugs, in the welcoming that you can't get watching a TV screen. And I'm not saying that there aren't people that should do that for health reasons, but I'm saying able-bodied people have now used that, and it's now the replacement for body life. And that just can't be, because there are so many things that you don't get when you're watching it on a screen. Amen? Amen? And so this is what we are confronted with as we look at the idea of the Sabbath day in a crazy and busy culture. We are to remember it. The Hebrew word zakar means to mark it. It's as if you would set an alarm on your phone or write the weekly appointment on your calendar. Your, this is a kingdom clock, a kingdom of God kind of clock. God says, this is what I want you to do. And I want you to remember the, the Sabbath day, which if you're uh, taking notes means seven. Sabbath means seven. And the Hebrew word, if you begin to dig down on the word, means to stop. It speaks of cessation, rest, repose, refreshment. So seven is Sabbath, but it also has the idea of completion. From the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. And when God made everything in six days, he said, it is good And he rested on the seventh day. Now, it's not that God needs to rest because he doesn't grow tired or weary, but he was setting a rhythm of life. He's saying, if you follow me as Lord, you do what I did. You rest on the seventh day in honor of what I've made. And we'll we'll talk about the fact that it's also in honor of our redemption. So rest is associated with the kingdom. And I would say to you, rest is associated with trust. Trust. The more you trust your God with the way that he would outline your calendar, the way that he would say your priorities should exist, the more rest you will experience. And I'm not talking about laying in a hammock, uh, you know, for 24 hours on that day. I'm not talking about a lazy day. I'm talking about what true rest means. Trust equals rest. Trust in the living God and in his ways. Now, There's a little bit more in Leviticus, which is the next book to your right. Turn over there with me. Leviticus 23. Here, the seven feasts of Israel are laid out, all seven throughout the calendar year. As God opens, speaking through Moses in Leviticus 23, he starts out with the Sabbath. We're going to begin in verse 1. I will just... A note for those of you who are reading through the New Testament, and studying the life of Jesus, that Jesus had a custom of being in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And for the Jew, the Sabbath day would start at Friday on Friday at sunset and ends Saturday at sunset, because in the Jewish mind, the day begins when the sun sets. So Friday evening to Saturday evening is the Jewish Shabbat. And there are Jewish Messianic believers and those who don't believe in Jesus, who do keep the Shabbat today. And that means they prepare all their food before the sun sets. And when it sets, they are not to be working. And they use it as a way of practical rest and you could say theological rest. Here's the idea of where worship mixes in with that. Leviticus 23, uh, one says, the Lord spoke again to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, the Lord's appointed times, now think of your, phone alarm or a calendar, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations, my appointed times are these. For six days, Leviticus 23.3, work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest. A holy convocation, the NIV says, a day of sacred assembly. You shall not do any work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwellings." Now, as the Lord lays out the covenant, the Ten Commandments, in the Hebrew picture language, it's interesting because the Sabbath means to return to the covenant. Every time Israel shut things down on a Friday evening and worship the Lord. And I want you to notice in Leviticus 23.3, you have the idea of rest, but also a holy convocation. That is a day of sacred assembly. It mixes the ideas of worship and rest. And I would submit to you that the more you worship, the more rest comes into your life. Amen? The more practical, spiritual rest, the more you draw near to God, the more he imparts these spiritual blessings as you honor what he says. And so in Leviticus 23, note it, you have the idea of a kingdom clock, a way that you follow the rhythm of your creator, the one that you call the king of your life. He has claims on your life, and this is how you follow him. Now, the Sabbath day was actually laid out, back to Exodus, take a peek at chapter 16, before the command was given. In Exodus 16, remember the miracle of the manna. Look at verses 21 and 22 it came about on the 6th day, Exodus 16:21, they gathered twice as much bread, 2 omers for each one, Exodus 16:21. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, "This is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, 16:22, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over put aside to be kept until the morning." The Sabbath command was actually given prior to the actual spoken command and written command. Israel knew about this Sabbath rhythm, that they were to set a a day aside. And here's essentially what it means. With all the debate about what it meant in terms of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it means that on the seventh day, you do not do business as usual. You slow down, you shut it down, and you focus on reflection, on who God is, on relationships, on emotional rest, on ending the grind, you name it, you can put it into this pot of the idea of resting on Shabbat. Cessation, rest, and even reflection on the goodness of God in your life. And this command in Exodus 20, verse 8 It says that you are to honor the Sabbath day, remember it, and keep it holy. How do you keep a day holy? What does that mean? Remember, whenever we see the word holy, it means to simply be set apart. So the day is especially set apart for God's work in your life. You are to hallow it. You are to make it special. Now, do you know that Jesus in his earthly ministry healed several people on the Sabbath day? Do you know how many people he healed on the Sabbath day? Take a guess. Seven. There's no mistaking that, brethren. He is sending a message. And when Jesus healed on the Sabbath day, five men and two women he healed on the Sabbath day, he was sending a message to the religious leadership of the day who had added man-made laws in 39 categories of different areas where you were not to do certain things on the Sabbath day. For example, if your false teeth fell out on the Sabbath day, you weren't supposed to pick them up and put them back in your mouth. You know what? That was considered work to pick up your false teeth. Now, they had a law that if you had something going on with your mouth or tooth pain and vinegar would help, you couldn't take vinegar medicinally. But if you happen to mix in vinegar with a meal and it happened to get in your mouth, and if you're healed, quoting one of the rabbis, then you're healed. They added all of these burdens upon people so that people could barely move a muscle on the Sabbath day. And Jesus confronted that with seven different healings on the Sabbath. I'm gonna show you two of them so you can get the picture. We're gonna to move to Luke 13. Luke 13, and of course, Jesus, as a faithful Jew, would honor Shabbat services and honor the Sabbath day, but here he is, Luke chapter 13, and this is what occurs. Jesus often was in synagogues on the Sabbath day, teaching, instructing, And here's the account, 1310. And Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, Luke 1310, on the Sabbath. There was a woman who for 18 years, uh, I was teaching on this, and a brother who attends first service, a man named Tom, pointed out to me that 18 is 666. It's the number of man, and we're gonna find out that somehow, though not all sickness can be attributed to a spiritual or demonic force, this woman, in this condition, somehow a spirit had affected her life. And this is the sad situation. She's obviously in the synagogue, but for 18 years, she had a sickness caused by a spirit, 11, and she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. For 18 years, this is how this woman lived like this. Now, I can't imagine 18 minutes like that, but can you imagine for 18 years, and now she's in the synagogue, and she's walked in like this, and she's bent over double, and something has gone on with her spiritual life, yet she's in the synagogue, and Jesus will call her a daughter of Abraham. What's happened to her? I don't know, but this is her existence, She's bent over double. Now, whenever Jesus did a miracle, y'all realize that his miracles were often parables. Now imagine if the woman represents a nation and she walks around like this. What is that picture to you? A person with all kinds of weights and burdens on their back. She, this woman, becomes a picture of the nation of Israel who has added so many man-made laws and rituals that people are weighed down by the religious legalism that is occur- occurring and they're, they're bent over, doubled over. And Jesus says to a group of people like that, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, you're weighed down and I, I'll be your Shabbat. I will give you what? I'll give you rest. See, I'm the answer to the Sabbath. I am the fulfillment, Jesus might say, of the Sabbath day. Come to me, not to the rituals, not to the burdens. You know, there are people in legalistic movements today that are so under the weight of what those movements call upon them, they could never fulfill them. They live bent over double under the weight. And that's what was happening in Israel. And that's why, I believe why Jesus specifically healed on the Sabbath day to challenge that. And so notice what happens. Jesus saw her, he called her over, and he said to her, woman, you are freed from your sickness. He came to set the captives free. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. This had to be much different than the typical synagogue service woman, come over here. You are free. And he laid his hands on her, and up she went after 18 years. And she was like, oh yeah, I'm gonna glorify God, right? She was excited. But the synagogue leader, not so much. The synagogue official was annoyed. She was praising the Lord, rejoicing, and a big smile on her face. And he said something like this. When you come into the synagogue, we'll have none of that. You must come into this place like you just ate a banana upside down. <laughs> this is how we do things around here. There's no smiling or laughing in church. And he was annoyed, indignant, indignant. Because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath and began saying to the crowd in response, there are six days in which work should be done, so come during them and get healed. (laughs) But not on the Sabbath day. We won't have any of that healing stuff going on on the Sabbath. Now what in the world is this synagogue official thinking? Is he thinking that God doesn't want to heal people on the Sabbath day? Does he actually think that healing is a work? It's not a work. It's a gift from God. And every time we gather, brethren, I would submit to you that this is one of the things that God wants to do. He wants to heal you. Now, it's not always physical healing. He wants to heal you spiritually. He wants to heal you emotionally. He wants to heal you in every area of your life. And when you gather on the Lord's day and you sit under the teaching of the word of God and he inhabits the praises of his people, this is what God is up to. He's touching and extending his hand, and healing. And it takes time, and we're being formed in the image of Christ, but you get what's going on here. This is God's heart. Uh, The disciples were walking in Matthew 12, and they started to pick some of the heads of grain, and of course, the Pharisees are always there to correct. What are you doing? Hey, what are they doing over there? And Jesus said, hey, I got a question for you. If one of your animals falls into a pit on the Sabbath day, will you go and get him out? Or will your poor animal be down there, and you go... I'd like to get you. Sorry, it's the Sabbath day. I can't can't rescue you. Now, the Sabbath day is about doing good. This is why when we gather on the Lord's day, we gather to do good. We come into the congregation with a heart. Who can I pray for? Who could I encourage? Sometimes I'm the one in deep need of some ministry. Uh, And there's other times when, Maybe my faith is high and the Lord just has me on the lookout to bring an encouraging word, to pray for somebody. This is what body life is all about. And I can't tell you that every time I walk in the church, especially at first service, I'm gung-ho and happy. Usually I say to this first service, good morning, and they go And then I say it a second time, good morning, and they go They try to get it out. Second service, you guys are a little bit better. You've had a little bit more time to have coffee and pancakes and whatever else that you've had. But here's the deal. Sometimes Alistair Begg was telling the story. He said he was visiting a church in California, our state, and the morning service began, and he said the worship leader, well-meaning, came out and said, how's everybody doing today? And Alistair said, I felt like a a kick in my dog. What What do you mean, how's everybody doing today? But he said, the moment that the worship began to rise in the name of Jesus was magnified, and my eyes got off myself and back on the Lord, all that stuff melted away. Sometimes it just takes one line of a worship song, and I'm back where I need to be. Amen? Amen. This is what God does when we gather. This is why he's given us a rhythm of life. Do you keep the day holy? I realize I'm preaching to the choir here, but holy means to be set apart, sanctified, hallowed in scripture, celebrated. And so this is the what. Let's look at the how in Exodus 20. Oh, actually, I got one more account for you. John, so you're still in Luke, hopefully. John 5. So this is the other healing that uh, I wanted to point out to you of the seven. Jesus approaches this area in John 5, verse 1. The Pool of Bethesda. Notice, he went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, John 5:2, a pool which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five colonnades or porticos. John 5:3. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Now, there was a tradition there, or some sort of belief, weird belief, that when the water was stirred up. If you could step in there right when the water was stirred up, you could be healed. Verse five, there was a man who was there. He had been ill for 38 long years. And Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition. He said to him, do you wish to get well? Now the sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Every time I try to get there, someone beats me. And Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately the man became well, picked up his pallet and began to walk, brethren, after 38 years. Now, are you ready? It was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. And they asked him, now get this, not who's the one who healed you? We'd really like to find out who he is. They said, who's the one who told you to pick up your bed and walk? Never mind that you've been in this condition for 38 years. We've got a problem with the guy who allowed you to be a bed picker-upper and walker. Now let me ask you, Was the man healed at the pool of Bethesda breaking the commandment? Was he working? Oh, no. You know what he was doing? He was simply taking his mat because he was ready to go tell all of his friends what Jesus did for him. Amen? He was ready to rejoice. He wasn't picking up a burden or working. His burdens had been lifted from him. And from that moment of that healing, the Jews, the religious leadership, get in conflict with Jesus. And he essentially says to them, you know, you, you search the scriptures because you think you have life in them. And these are they that testify of me, but you refuse to come to me that you might have life. You're so worried about nitpicking the little things that you miss the healing right in front of you and the healing that you could experience that's right in front of you. And so we've dealt with the what. Let's look at the how. Back to Exodus twenty verse 9. So we keep the day holy. We set it apart. Six days, Exodus 20, verse 9, you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. Notice it is to him. In it you shall do, not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. Notice it is a sweeping command that no one is to work. Everyone is afforded the day of rest. And just like having an idol taking the name of the Lord in vain, if someone broke the Sabbath commandment, the result was very serious. In fact, if you wanna write down numbers 15, 32 through 36, there's a man doing work on the Sabbath day. He's caught and he is stoned. He's actually killed for what he did. Now that seems harsh, But the question becomes, what was he doing? Why was he working on a day that the Lord told him and everybody not to work? Why did he thumb his nose at the command of God? It's important that we have a time for work and a time for rest. And let me just say to you that work is not a curse. Before there was a fall, Genesis 2.15 says that God planted Adam in the garden to cultivate it and keep it. Genesis 2:15 work is a blessing the the command acknowledges six days of work you should work and you should work hard and an honest week of work does give contentment to the soul amen when you work hard and you do your best at your profession it is nice to be able to look back on a work week and say that was good I did my best now I, I was I asked my wife I said you know when you look back a uh, Uh, at a week, do you say like God said to his creation, it's good, it was good, it's good? Or do you normally look back on a week and go, wow, glad that's over. That was hectic. That was hectic. That was hectic. I would say for an American audience like this, you probably choose B more often. But could I submit to you that maybe we need to do a little bit more at the end of a work week. Man, that was good. Now, maybe you say, well, nothing good happened. My, you don't know my boss, and you don't know the people I work with. I get it. But you have a job, and you go to that home that you have a roof over your head. Can you maybe change the song a little bit? Can I? Can I reflect on a work week and say, Lord, you're good? Am, am I, have I gotten so negative that I can't even do that, even if there were a few bumps in the week? Can I still say the Lord is good? Here I am. He's blessed me in so many ways. See, I think this is the principle. And work is a gift from God, but also the idea of Shabbat, Sabbath, refocusing on the covenant, spiritual rest, emotional rest. So many things that I need that the Lord provides. Thomas Watson put it this way. This day, a Christian is in the altitudes. He walks with God and takes, as it were, a turn with him in heaven. We meet with God by prayer and the ministry of the word. Another writer says, by singing his praises and presenting our offerings to him, by celebrating the sacraments and sharing in Christian fellowship. The result, according to Watson, is that the heart which all week was frozen on the Sabbath melts with the word close quote. Amen? Sometimes just one word from his Bible, one word softens me again. Because this world can do all kinds of things to beat us up. That's why the day is hallowed. That's why we set it apart. That's why on the first day of the week, the Christian church began to worship. I'll give you more at the end of the message, but Acts 20, verse seven, says that they gathered on the first day of the week. 1 Corinthians 16, two says they took offerings on the first day of the week. And you say, well, why did they do that? Because they did it in honor of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the Sabbath day was supplanted by Sunday. I'll give you a little bit more as we move on. But here, now we're gonna deal with the why. We've got the what, the how, how do we honor the day? Let's deal with the why. Exodus 20, verse 11. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. I was listening to Vodi Bakum and he said, you know, you imagine someone coming to you and saying, you believe that the Lord made everything on this planet in a week? And Vodi responded, no, in six days. He rested on the seventh day. And there are people who will mock this idea today. Scientific minds in the secular world, oh, that's ridiculous. God making everything in six days. And some of you even say six literal 24-hour days. How is that possible? Well, let me ask you this question, and I'll ask it to the so-called secular scientists. Do you know what they believe? They believe that everything that you see the millions of forms of plants and animals, the stars, the cosmos, the the incredible order of the moon and the sun and the oceans and plant life and sea life and your body uh, with its incredible systems of keeping you alive and self-healing and reproduction and so many things that we could talk about. That all happened by chance. And nobody's behind it. This is Darwinian evolution. They believe that something started swirling in the sky eons ago, and all of a sudden, planets began to be shot out. This is what they believe. And one of those planets got really hot, and then it rained on that planet for about 20 million years. And from the soupy substance created and lightning strikes that hit, the soupy substance was New England clam chowder, just in case you wondered. (laughs) A lightning strike hit, and... Out came your great, 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 great granddaddy. And he found a wife and something to eat. And from that time. Now, they won't explain it the way I just explained it to you. But that is literally what they believe. And they call us unscientific. Imagine I said to you that over millions of years, this building, as a miracle of evolutionary processes, came together. Doors flew into place, paint colors on the wall. You know, scriptures just appeared. You know, the wind just went exactly the right way. Light bulbs screwed into the ceiling. As the wind just perfectly hit the side? And at first surface, I said, oh, come on, man. I mean, that's ridiculous. And I, and I got a chuckle, and I wasn't even trying to imitate anybody. Now, this idea comes from the book of Genesis, just the book before chapter two. In the creation account, so before there was ever a nation of Israel or um, God had chosen Abraham, there's a creation account in Genesis chapter two. Here's what it says. And if you go back to verse 31, you can get the setting. Uh, Remember, in your Bible, chapter breaks were implemented by a guy who uh, did a pretty good job, but he literally did this while riding a horse. And I'm not kidding around. He put the chapter breaks in riding on horseback. So you gotta forgive him a little bit. I say that because I think Genesis 131 goes with 2.1. Take a look. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens, Genesis 2.1, and the earth, were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day God completed his work which he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day, sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Now you can see the pattern there before there's a nation of Israel, you have the idea of the Sabbath day. God is giving us a rhythm of life to follow. This account is laughed at by much of the world. They say that's ridiculous. In fact, they dismiss Genesis chapters 1 through 11, which explain everything that's happened to mankind, including the fall, how sin entered the world, how we need a redeemer, and the flood story. It's all there. And I was watching the news yesterday, which I don't recommend, And there was coverage of a store where people had stolen all this merchandise. A worker from that store is standing there, can't do anything about it. And the people are shoving the stuff they've stolen into their vehicle. And there's nothing that anybody can do about it because our culture has become so upside down. And and I I couldn't help but think, we're we're back in Genesis 6, man. We're, We're back into a time where we're moving close to it where the thoughts and intents of the heart are only evil continually. What is going on? Have we returned to the book of Genesis? I tell you, man. You watch the laws you know, coming down the pike in America and you're like, you gotta be kidding. Another one, another one, another one. Where does it stop? You get away from this order and the king that put it into place, and this is what we get. We get chaos, brethren. You think that we're headed for a utopia if mankind has his secular dream realized? You know what his secular dream is? Socialism. Which, by the way, has been bankrupt in every single country it's been tried. We we just met with a brother. I believe he comes from Ethiopia. And they tried it for 17 years in that country. And it devastated everything. They imprisoned and tortured and killed Christians. It's just, it's a system that is absolutely bankrupt. And God says, "If if you wanna know what life's about, if you wanna understand who you are, where you're going, you want the divine pattern, you want the stuff of the kingdom, this is it. Jewish theologian Abraham Heschel writes, the Sabbath is a day on which we are called upon to show what is eternal in time, to turn from the results of creation To the mystery of creation, from the world of creation to the creation of the world, and thus to the Creator. It's a time to reflect on who made us in His image. It's a time to recapture the divine pattern. It's a time to think deeply about deeper things that go beyond just the now and your Monday morning. Amen. It's a time to reflect on your destiny on things that transcend everything that you see. You know that $130 billion, 38 billion billion that Bill Gates has got? He's gonna leave it to somebody else. And he's gonna stand before his creator. And everybody else is as well. And we, we get fooled into thinking that somehow we can preserve and make eternal what is temporal. And God gets eradicated from the equation to our peril. Now, the commandments are repeated in Deuteronomy, which is... Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Take a look, because there's a further element I want you to see. The next generation has these re-given to them, Deuteronomy chapter five, with an added dimension. Yes, they're a reflection on God's majesty of creation, but they also reflect on something else, just to cut to the chase. Look at 515. Deuteronomy 515, it's the Sabbath command, and it says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Something to note, brethren, the Sabbath is a remembrance of creation and redemption. And when we gather on a Lord's day like this, this is what we remember, our creator and our redeemer. We remember that we lived in our Egypt doing the work of the Pharaoh, that is Satan. We were making his buildings, marching to the beat of his drum, and we were saved by God's mighty hand, by the blood of the Lamb, amen? And we were baptized into the sea and brought into the promises, and we're heading for the promised land. This is what happens when we gather in the name of our God. We celebrate his creation. We celebrate our redemption every Sunday, and we need it because God is good, amen? Amen? And so we press into our important relationships. We discover emotional rest. We discover that we can encourage one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. We don't treat the day as a normal day because it is special. Dr. Rover Rayburn once told a story of a man who was approached by a beggar on the street. The man reached into his pocket to see what he had and he found seven $1 bills and he felt sorry for the beggar, so he held out six of the bills and said, here you go. Not only did the beggar grab the $6, but with the other hand, he struck the benefactor across his face and took the seventh dollar. What do you think about the beggar? There's no point to that story. I just thought it was a cute story. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Basically, this is what we often do. We give God six, but we hold back the seventh. Or we say, I'll give you this much, but that's all. And so this day points to a day that is coming. It's going to be a day of rest, the millennial rest of Christ. You know that each Sabbath, each Lord's Day that we meet is basically a dress rehearsal for a day when God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. When we will enter into our true rest, amen? When we will see him face to face. When he will wipe away all the tears from our eyes. He's preparing us for that day. And each time we gather, we get a little bit closer, if you will, to heaven. And the idea of a new heaven and a new earth is behind it. So the final thing I wanna share with you is what does the church do with this? Why is it that the Christian church meets on Sunday instead of Saturday? Pastor Michael, you've been saying that this is a command. Well, one thing I would say to you is that Of the Ten Commandments, nine are repeated in the New Testament. The only one not repeated is the Sabbath day. And here's what happened. When Jesus Christ died on the first day of the week, the whole Christian church shifted the day of worship from Shabbat to Sunday. Now, I'm not saying that if someone wants to worship and keep the Sabbath or keep the Passover, they shouldn't. They can do that as long as they know that it's fulfilled in Jesus, amen? That he is our Sabbath, that he is our Passover. Then all of that fits beautifully, but not to earn your salvation. That's not what this is all about. And so the early church was Jew and Gentile, and they became one in Christ. And all of a sudden, can you imagine, a Jewish person raised in the Torah, raised in the commandments, sits next to a Gentile person from Rome or Corinth who knows nothing at all about that. They have different days of worship, different diet. How do they come together and get along? Paul writes Romans 14 and basically says, it's not about your diet. It's not about the days of worship. Let each person be convinced in their own mind. Don't stumble one another. Don't judge one another because the Shabbat, the Sabbath, has been fulfilled in Christ. You are now one. There is no longer a civil mandate, if you will. There's no longer, it's fulfilled ceremonially, But morally, we gather on the Lord's Day to honor the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mentioned two scriptures to you. You might want to write them down. Acts 20, verse 7. 1 Corinthians 16, 2, which indicates the church was meeting on the first day of the week, which, by the way, was a work day. It was the first day of the week, so it was a work day for the church. Everybody went back to work on the first day of the week. It was like our Monday. So the early church met in the evening on Sunday night. MacArthur comments, the early church fathers from Ignatius to Augustine taught that the Old Testament Sabbath had been abolished and the first day of the week Sunday was the day when Christians should meet for worship. This disproves the claim of some that Sunday worship was not instituted until the fourth century. B.B. Warfield explained it this way, Christ took the Sabbath into the grave with him and brought the Lord's day out of the grave with him on the resurrection morn. And then this writer confirms, the civil aspect of the command has expired, the ceremonial aspect has been fulfilled, but the moral aspect remains. And to this, the church must set the example. It is the Lord's day, and that's why we gather. Now, if the worship team can hear my voice, I've got one more scripture for you. It's in Colossians chapter two. If you turn over there in the New Testament, We're wrapping it up. And so Paul is talking about, he's addressing kind of a weird uh, combination of heresies that emerged in the city of Colossae. And in addressing it, he's talking about the cross, and we'll get to the main verses, but go back to Colossians 2.14 and notice what it says. Jesus has canceled out the certificate of debt, Colossians 2.14, Consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him, or some versions say by the cross. Therefore, in the light that Jesus bore all of that and they were nailed to the cross, therefore, no one is to act as your judge. In regard to food, or drink, or in respect to a festival, or a new moon, or what your Bible say? Or a Sabbath day. Things which were, are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement, the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind." and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. Don't be taken in by decrees like, you can't do that, you can't touch that, you can't taste that. Take your vacations, enjoy your life, but in the normal rhythm of life, honor the Lord's day. Amen? Because he loved us first, and so we love him. The writer of Hebrews sums it up by saying, there remains therefore a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The one who has entered into his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Father, thank you for the teaching of the Sabbath day. Jesus, thank you that you are our rest. You are my Sabbath. Thank you that you said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, weighed down like that woman in the synagogue. And I, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And in me, you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, it's easy. My burden is light. Lord, I pray that you'd be lifting burdens in this room and the biggest burden that we feel is the weight of our sin. It is on our shoulders, on our back, the weight of guilt. And Jesus, thank you that you came to deal with that, that you bore that weight on the cross, that the one who is our very life and creator came down and bore the weight of our sin so that we could be truly free. We could be free of that, of the guilt that goes with it. We could be set free from sin, the wages of sin and death. Thank you that that's what you do, Lord. You free people. You are the Lord of the Sabbath. With your head and heart bowed, would you let the word of God now just settle in your soul? Would you take a just a moment or two to Do what the book of Psalms says is a Selah moment. Let the Lord speak to your heart about maybe things that you need to lay down, perspectives. Maybe for you, it would be the first time that you realize that Jesus came to bear that weight for you. The weight of sin he bore at the cross, though he was innocent. He took the wrath of God as though he had broken the commandments. And he wants to give you life and peace and true rest, but you've got to have a moment where you repent and open your heart to him. And there's no perfect prayer, but the essence of it is something like this. Lord Jesus, thank you that you entered into this broken world. Thank you for carrying the cross and dying in my place. I'm burdened, and things are heavy, but I'm gonna trust in you for my salvation. I believe you died on the cross for my sin, that you rose from the dead to justify me in God's eyes. I want you to be my Lord and my King. I wanna follow the ways of the King and the kingdom. I want my life to have the rhythm of heaven. Would you please forgive me and restore me Give me true rest in Christ. If you're a saint, maybe this has been a heavy season for you. I pray that the Lord will lift the burdens off of your shoulders. And you will experience a rest from heaven. The burden bearing God will refresh you, give you shalom, give you peace. Father, for every precious person who's gathered on this Lord's day, may your word continue to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.